0: How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the Internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create The Wrap Dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters.
0: Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation by presidential historian, Lindsay Chervinsky. She is a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University and the Library of Congress. Today, we're discussing her book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Dr. Chervinsky, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I didn't quite realize until I read your book, which I really enjoyed, that there is no provision for a cabinet anywhere in the Constitution of the United States. George Washington presided over the Constitutional Convention. He knew he was going to be president, but he never managed to insert any provision or deal with anything relating to a cabinet. So, uh, where did the idea for a cabinet actually come from?
1: Well, you are you are not alone. So many people are shocked to learn that the word cabinet is nowhere in the Constitution. And this was very intentional because most Americans blamed the British cabinet for starting the conflict that led to the Revolutionary War. And they were very eager to avoid that type of advisory system that they really believed was the heart of all corruption and cronyism in the British system. And they really wanted to have a process that was much more transparent and had a lot more responsibility or at least clear responsibility about who was making the decisions. And so they had put in place a couple of provisions in the constitution that would give the president support. One, the executive departments were mentioned and the secretaries were supposed to provide written advice for the president. The second was that the Senate was going to be a council of foreign affairs. And that makes a little bit more sense when you're talking about a Senate of 22 people instead of a Senate of 100 people as an advisory body. And Washington, as you mentioned, was the president of the Constitutional Convention. And so he fully expected to use these options when he became president. But Like all best laid plans, sometimes once you actually get into office, what you think is going to work doesn't. And that was very much true for Washington. And he was willing to experiment and try new things because the Constitution was so new and still very much in flux. And he realized about two and a half years into his presidency that some subjects like war and trade with foreign nations are simply too large to only discuss with one advisor. And so on November 26th, 1791, he convened his first cabinet meeting with all of his department secretaries, and then used his previous experience, his previous leadership experience as the commander in chief of the Continental Army as a model for how to guide those conversations and how to lead that group of men.
0: So that's two years into his presidency before he actually has a cabinet meeting. Is that right? That's right. So go back to the Constitutional Convention for a moment. You point out in your book that the members of the Constitutional Convention thought that the president of the United States should have some advisors, and they debated whether they should create a special executive council of some type, which would uh, give him advice from time to time beyond what the Senate might do. And they ultimately, many times, uh, talked about it, but they never actually went ahead and put that in the Constitution. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. They actually explicitly voted down proposals for different types of executive councils or advisory bodies. And for a couple of different reasons. One, they felt maybe it would limit the president's ability to make decisions or limit presidential power. And that had been one of the real problems of the Articles of Confederation, that there wasn't one person who could make decisions and then act with decisiveness. So they weren't eager to replicate that process. Another was they felt like it might be a place for corruption to grow. They felt like it would lead to a cabal of intrigue, and they were very much trying to avoid that again. And they thought maybe it would make people too powerful, and they wanted to have a more streamlined hierarchy where it was clear who was calling the final shots, who you know where the buck really stopped, to use Truman's phrase.
0: Okay, so George Washington's elected unanimously expending no money on getting elected, which is a rarity today, of course. Uh, He has an obligation to appoint cabinet officers. Now the constitution doesn't say, once you appoint them, they come together and meet in a cabinet, but he does have a responsibility to appoint, presumably people to head various departments. So in the initial selection of cabinet officers or officers of these executive departments, how many does Washington pick and who does he pick?
1: Well, this process, I think, is so interesting because it really demonstrates that the the early government was so much still in flux and evolving long past the Constitutional Convention. The Constitution mentions executive departments, but it doesn't say how many or what they're supposed to do that was the work of the first federal Congress. It's really amazing. The first federal Congress in the first year, they created the judiciary system, they created the executive departments, and they passed the Bill of Rights. So no Congress is ever going to be more effective than that particular one. But in terms of the executive departments, they created the Department of State, the Department of War, the Department of the Treasury, and an attorney general, which did not have a Department of Justice, but was really more of like a legal advisor to the president and the other secretaries. So for those four positions, Washington selected Thomas Jefferson for his Secretary of State, Henry Knox for his Secretary of War, Alexander Hamilton for his Secretary of the Treasury, and Edmund Randolph for his Attorney General. And he did so very intentionally Those four men had different expertise and knowledge and experience than he did, so they supplemented what he brought to the office. He intentionally wanted people who thought differently and pushed back and said no and could provide new perspectives. And Washington's contemporaries recognized that for the time, they were a very diverse group. Now, we would see that group and we would think that's five white guys. But they looked at it and they saw it was people from different parts of the country, different economic backgrounds, different education, different cultural or economic traditions or factions. And that was really important at a time when Washington was trying to bring the country together. And there weren't emotional ties between the states or between the American people and the federal government.
0: Now, if I recall, Jefferson was not in the country at the time that Washington asked him to be Secretary of State, and if I recall, Jefferson didn't learn had he been picked as Secretary of State until about two months later when he came back from France. Is that right or wrong?
1: That's right. So when Washington was trying to figure out who was going to be the Secretary of State, the most experienced diplomat in the United States of, of Americans was John Adams, and he was the vice president, so he was not available. John Jay was probably the second most experienced, and Washington gave him the choice of Secretary of State or Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and he chose Chief Justice. So then Washington was trying to figure out, okay, well, who's next? And he was very close with James Madison at that point, who was also very close with Thomas Jefferson. And he recommended that Jefferson be selected. And Washington thought that was a good choice. Jefferson was fluent in French, which was the language of diplomacy at the time and had been at several different European courts. But he was on his way back from France, so he couldn't exactly be consulted. And so Washington just kind of went ahead and did it with Madison's encouragement that he would say yes or with Madison's encouragement that he could convince Jefferson to do it. And so when Jefferson returned back to the United States, he basically had a letter on his desk saying, congratulations, you've been appointed as secretary of state.
0: So when these individuals are are appointed, these positions, they have to be confirmed by the Senate. In the way that we look at confirmation today, they're typically contentious votes and things like that. But were those confirmations then done with a Senate vote? And was it contentious in any way for any of those cabinet officers?
1: Confirmations were done with the Senate vote. That's, again, something that was determined by the first federal Congress, how these individuals would be selected and approved and also removed. So they were all approved by the Senate. Generally, the Senate deferred to the president for much of American history, really up to the mid 20th century, unless someone had a very clear conflict of interest or something in their past that suggested that they were untrustworthy. And so there were occasional rejections, but at the cabinet level, it was relatively rare.
0: So you point out in your book that from time to time, as general of the Revolutionary War effort, Washington would bring together his senior officers in a kind of cabinet-like or council-like setting, where he would ask them to give their views and he would like them to have some conversations back and forth. Is that the model that he liked to engage in, which is to actually have people talk back to him about their views? And, And did he take anything from being a general in the Revolutionary War, the way he ran it, to the way he ultimately ran the cabinet or consulted with his executive officers?
1: Absolutely. I think this is one of Washington's greatest strengths as a leader, which was that he was very aware of what he didn't know. He was very aware of his weaknesses. So anytime he had to make a a big decision as commander of the army, anytime he had to order a retreat, which would be potentially controversial, anytime he had to build consensus, he would call together his officers, Head of time, he would send out a list of questions so that they could be prepared and then use that list of questions as the meeting agenda. And then if the officers disagreed, which happened a lot because there were different people with different personalities and different opinions and big egos sometimes and very keenly aware of their sense of honor – He would ask for written opinions so that he could be sure he had heard from every person, to be sure that he understood all of his different options, to ensure that he had evidence about who said what in the event that he needed it. And then he would, of course, make his own decision based on on that input and enforce it. And he borrowed that same model and he applied it. He basically copied and pasted it directly into the executive branch. And it worked for a couple of reasons. He liked having sometimes contentious debate. He didn't mind the conflict. He wasn't trying to avoid it. It was helpful for him, for his first his officers and then his secretaries to basically stress test the various different options. And so he could kind of sit back and see where the weaknesses and where the strengths of various positions were. It also allowed him to hear from a lot of different people to ensure that everyone was heard from. And it did build up over time, I think more so in the army than in the cabinet, uh, in a sense of esprit de corps, a sense of brotherhood that helped to get them through some particularly tough moments.
0: Now, you point out that two years into the administration, he took these senior officers and stopped talking to them directly one-on-one and brought them together. He may still have talked to them one-on-one, but he brought them together in a, quote, cabinet. Where'd the word cabinet come from, by the way?
1: The word cabinet comes from the British version. So initially, the British monarch had a Privy Council. And as the Privy Council got too large and became sort of an unwieldy governing body the king started to pull off his favorite ministers into a small room off of the privy council chambers that was called the king's cabinet. Cabinet was basically another word for like a small study or even like a closet. And that group, it became known as the king's cabinet council. And eventually council was just dropped and it became known as the king's cabinet. And so we adopted that, like we adopted so many things uh, from our British relations and um, it became known as the American cabinet.
0: Okay, So when he is bringing these officers together in a cabinet form, does he um, do this on a frequent basis, once a day, once a week, once a month? How frequently does he bring them together?
1: It really depended on what he needed at that particular moment. So the high point of cabinet meetings in Washington's administration was in 1793, when he was trying to figure out how to keep the United States out of the war between France and Great Britain, which is called the neutrality crisis. And at that point, that summer of 1793, the cabinet met up to five times per week, sometimes several hours per day. As a side note, they met in Washington's private study, which was a relatively small room, about 15 by 21 feet, no air conditioning in Philadelphia in August. And at this point, Hamilton and Jefferson really despised each other. So that can't have been a particularly fun meeting environment. Um, so that was the high point of the cabinet meetings. Towards the end of his presidency, as Washington's initial cabinet retired or resigned, and he replaced them with secretaries that were really not as good of quality as the initial appointees, he preferred to meet with them less, either one-on-one or in writing, and only met a couple of times per year if he was dealing with a major decision or a precedent setting situation.
0: I've observed the same phenomenon in recent days because... When I worked in the White House, uh, President Carter said he was gonna have a cabinet government. And then after he had a couple cabinet meetings, he kind of dropped the idea because he realized you can't make a decision with, in in that case, 20 different people sitting around a room. But the idea of a cabinet convening meeting and actually everybody gets to talk about everybody else's business is a little bit more complicated than it seems in concept, I guess.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and while Washington was meeting with his cabinet, he only really brought issues to cabinet deliberations that did require the input of multiple departments. So, for example, with the neutrality crisis, that had, of course, economic implications. If you cut off trade, it had war implications if you were trying to avoid war. And for the Department of State, for diplomatic implications, if you're trying to come up with some sort of engagement. For issues that were really just about one department, he continued to manage those one-on-one with the secretaries or in writing, because as you said, if you have everyone in on every decision, nothing ever gets done.
0: So for those who have watched the play Hamilton, they know what you just alluded to, that Hamilton and Jefferson were not exactly uh, bosom buddies, and they had different points of view. Uh, How did Washington try to arbitrate the differences, or did he give up trying to arbitrate this and just deal with them one on one?
1: Well, for a long time, he did really try and arbitrate. And it was interesting because initially, Well, Hamilton and Jefferson disagreed about pretty much everything from day one, but they were at least respectful initially in that disagreement. And that was partly because, you know, they represented very different backgrounds. They came from very different places. They presented themselves in different forms of masculinity. I mean, every single thing you can possibly imagine, they kind of disagreed on, but they were respectful. The more time they spent together, however, they became convinced that the other person was a mortal threat to the future of the Republic, and something had to be done to take that person down. So Jefferson founded an opposition newspaper while he was still Secretary of State and started to sort of build up an opposition party. Hamilton tried to take down Jefferson, and and they were doing these things while they were in the cabinet and would often complain to Washington privately about the other person he would dismiss those complaints. He he urged them to try and work together. He pleaded with them to stay in the cabinet because he did feel that having both perspectives was really useful and important to, to be the best president he could be. He told them that they were both patriots and they were both um, good, small-R Republicans and they should try and work together. And that worked for a while. He actually kept Jefferson in the cabinet about two years longer than Jefferson wanted to be there, but eventually it just became too much and Jefferson resigned at the end of 1793 and then really was in full opposition mode from that point forward.
0: When Jefferson resigned, did he resign at that point voluntarily or did Washington kind of push him out?
1: No, it was very much voluntarily. I think that had he been willing to stay, Washington would have kept him for a long time. Washington had a pretty good sense of what he was doing behind the scenes. He knew that Jefferson had this newspaper editor on state department payroll, that in theory that this editor was supposed to be a translator, but the only language he spoke was French and Jefferson didn't need any help translating that language. So the ruse was not a particularly good one. Um, and, And Washington yet was still willing to deal with it because he felt like it was helpful to have Jefferson on board. So he was absolutely, um, not pushed out. And I think Washington would have continued to deal with him longer if he had been willing to stay.
0: And is there any truth to the rumor that I recall that Jefferson not only had his uh, people working for him criticize Hamilton, but Mm -hmm. sometimes in the Gazette that Jefferson had, there'd be criticisms of Washington. In other words, somebody was actually in the cabinet criticizing his boss, Was that true or did Jefferson stay away from ever criticizing or having these gazettes criticize Washington himself?
1: Oh, no, it was absolutely true. The newspaper was incredibly critical, first of Hamilton and Hamilton's financial legislation and planning but then of the administration more broadly. And Washington, initially, he loved newspapers. He's what we would call a news junkie today. He subscribed to any news newspapers in Philadelphia. And then once it was clear this newspaper was going to be quite critical of him, he canceled his subscription. And the newspaper editor continued to deliver it several times per week anyway to the president's house just to annoy the president, which worked quite well. And Washington complained about it all the time in the cabinet meetings um it's it's hard for us to even fathom that level of betrayal and insubordination while leading the secretary of state position
0: after jefferson resigned from the cabinet and from the position as secretary of state did he ever talk to washington again
1: they did exchange a few more letters about farming about various different crops. And then at one point, criticism that Jefferson had written in private letters was leaked. And he wrote to Washington, basically kind of denying it and assuring Washington that he still respected him and and had nothing but good things to say about him. But at that point, Washington really resented the public criticism. He was willing to overlook almost anything if it stayed private. But the minute it became public, that was a a deal breaker for him. And so by the time Washington died, they were no longer speaking.
0: When Hamilton left the cabinet, he left principally, I think, because he wanted to make some more money and practice law in New York and so forth. And he was a very accomplished lawyer. Did he retain his relationship with Washington?
1: Yes, he did. You're right. He left because cabinet positions back then were not very well compensated and they were not particularly prestigious like we would think of today. They opened you up to a lot of criticism. They were a ton of hard work. You were away from your family. Travel was very difficult and slow at the time. So they were quite onerous. And Hamilton went back to New York. He did resume his legal practice, but he stayed in close touch with Washington and he actually drafted the farewell address for Washington that was published in the fall of 1796. So they maintained a close working relationship all the way up through Washington's death.
0: Now, today, we often hear about fights between the cabinet and the White House staff. There's always some skirmishing, it seems. Uh, But there was no White House staff then, more or less. So the president basically had to have his principal advisors, the cabinet, because there was no staff that Washington had. Is that right?
1: He did have a couple of people. He had a private secretary to help with some correspondence. And then he had what is kind of like the first version of a chief of staff. His name was Tobias Lear. He was kind of like a chief secretary, and he would manage a lot of the correspondence. Sometimes he would sit in on cabinet meetings to take notes for Washington or to help manage a decision. He would call together cabinet meetings, but nothing like we would think of today. Really, we're talking about two or three people at most.
0: So let's, in the remaining time we have, let's talk about something you focus on in the book, which is a major focus toward the end of uh, Washington's tenure, and that's a treaty that was negotiated by John Jay. So why was John Jay negotiating a treaty, um, and how did Washington have to resolve that within his cabinet and deal with members of Congress and explain the background of it?
1: So after the Revolutionary War officially ended with the Treaty of Paris in 1783, there were a number of responsibilities that both Great Britain and the United States had in order to comply with the terms of the treaty. Americans were supposed to repay their debts to British merchants. The British had controlled a number of forts in American territory in the West. They were supposed to relinquish those. Neither side was really willing to do their side until it was clear the other was going to comply with the terms. So there were a lot of lingering tensions left over from the war, and they started to accelerate as the British Navy started to impress American citizens. The British Navy constantly needed more sailors, and they accused some American sailors of actually being British citizens that sort of run away. So as they started to impress these sailors into naval service, tensions accelerated, and Washington asked Chief Justice John Jay to go to Great Britain to negotiate a new treaty. He asked Jay because Jay had a uh, reputation and had a history of being able to negotiate successfully these big treaties, including he had a very important role negotiating the Treaty of Paris initially in 1783. He was well-respected in Britain. He was very reasonable. He was sensible. He was a really good diplomat. And at the time, it wasn't that unusual for the Chief Justice to do that, although it seems really unfathomable to us today. Jay got what I think is the best treaty that could happen under the circumstances at the moment. The United States had no leverage. They had no bargaining power, and yet they did manage to get some concessions from the British. However, it was very unpopular in the South in particular because it didn't require British to pay compensation In the same way to Americans that owned enslaved individuals as it did other debts. And so it was deemed as this big betrayal to southern interests. The Senate did ratify the treaty, even though they had some objections and Washington did sign it. And then it went to the House of Representatives for them to raise money to fill out the various different forms and clauses that were required. And because this treaty was so unpopular, some of the Jeffersonian Republicans in the House thought that they would request all of the executive papers pertaining to this treaty because they figured that they might embarrass the administration and therefore scuttle the treaty. They made that request, and Washington sent a letter back on March 30th, which I think is like one of the most incredible letters that has ever been written by an American president, and he did so with his cabinet's approval because he asserted executive privilege for the first time, but he did so in a very careful way. First, he acknowledged the right of congressional oversight, and he listed all the times that he had previously complied with their requests for documents. He drew a distinction between sort of regular congressional oversight and impeachment inquiries, saying that if this was an impeachment inquiry, it would be a much higher bar, and he would, of course, turn over these papers. But in this moment, diplomacy required secrecy, what we would think of as sort of a national security argument, and he felt like it would be damaging to the nation's long-term diplomatic interests to air all of the negotiations. And then he turned to the House and he said – I was at the Constitutional Convention when we were deciding who was going to participate in the treaty-making process, and the House has no role. And he accused them of trying to basically usurp additional constitutional authority that was not appropriate. And he said, if you don't believe me, I have the journals from the Constitutional Convention in the Department of State offices, and you are welcome to come check them out. So it is a remarkably snarky document, which Washington doesn't usually do, but it is precedent setting in that it establishes the concept of executive privilege. He put his weight behind the treaty, resistance to it absolutely crumbled. And it lays out this various different elements of what it means to have congressional oversight and the importance of presidential participation.
0: Speaking of congressional oversight, uh, there's a very famous incident, which you describe in your book, where George Washington is trying to get, I think, confirmation of some of his appointees, and maybe it's ambassadors, um, and he goes up physically to the Senate to get a discussion with them about these appointees, and then he is treated very poorly in his view and resolves never to go back physically to the Senate, and I think he never did. What is that all about?
1: Yeah, so this moment actually happens in August of 1789, so just four months into Washington's presidency, and he's actually sending a peace commission to meet with representatives from the Creek and Cherokee Nations and North Carolina and South Carolina, and so he wants the Senate's advice on what sort of instructions he should give to that peace commission. He had planned the meeting, he sent them questions, he sent them documents to review, he basically assigned them homework. On the day of, he showed up, he had an address explaining the situation, and he had a list of questions like he had so often done with his councils of war and then in the future with his cabinet. And instead of deliberating on those questions like Washington wanted or debating or providing various ideas, the Senate was silent and didn't say anything for a while and then finally asked if they could refer to committee to discuss it privately and have him come back the following week for his recommendation. And Washington absolutely lost his temper. He yelled at them. He told them it defeated every purpose of his being there. And while he did eventually agree to come back, he reportedly said on the way out that he would never again return to the Senate for advice, and he didn't. And as a result, no president has ever returned to the Senate for advice in that way, as the delegates at the Constitutional Convention really expected and anticipated And I think this moment is so illustrative because he concluded that the Senate was annoying and they were not responsive and they were not going to provide the immediate feedback that he needed to conduct diplomacy, to lead as a president had to. And so he had to look for alternatives and be creative about how he would get input. And that ultimately did lead to the cabinet a couple of years later.
0: So if somebody is thinking about reading your book, but not quite sure, Uh, What would you like to summarize the main premise of the book? And why would you think somebody would be better off to read the book rather than just listen to the premise of the book?
1: The main premise is that the cabinet is a creative solution that Washington made in real time while trying to respond organically to challenges that he could not possibly foresee. And as a result, has created an institution that defines the presidency. Great presidents use their cabinets brilliantly and flourish with that flexibility. Poor presidents are really hamstrung by it. And I think the cabinet is the very best way to understand a presidency. And hopefully this book will help you see why.
0: So after doing this particular book, uh, are you more enamored with or impressed with George Washington or a little bit less enamored or less impressed with George Washington? And I should point out you're a graduate of George Washington University as well. Is that right?
1: I am. I am. I wouldn't say that I'm enamored. I have I have a very clear sense of his flaws and limitations, but I certainly came away from the book with more respect for what he accomplished and what he did. I think that being the first president was a nearly impossible task. And the number of decisions that he had to make for the first time were nearly limitless and with with often no model to follow and relatively little guidance. Usually I avoid hyperbolic statements like this, but there was no one else that could do that job because he was the only person that had the stature and the national reputation and the trust of the American people to wield that kind of power for the first time. And that is a type of pressure I cannot even begin to comprehend. And so I have enormous respect for someone who could do it, who knew when to close his mouth and not say anything, and then when to walk away.
0: So if you had a chance to have dinner with George Washington, And you had a chance to ask him one or two questions that are in your mind as a result of researching this book. What would you like to ask him?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. No one has ever asked me that before. Um, I guess I would ask him, he had a falling out with Edmund Randolph, who had been the attorney general and then the secretary of state. And I would like to ask him how he felt about it, because he very rarely left a record of his feelings of what he was thinking. He just left a record of what he did. He acted pretty hastily because he wanted to separate himself from any hint of tarnish or any hint of misdeeds. And I wonder if he regretted that hasty action. So I think that I would ask him that. And then with this next book that I'm just finishing up now, I'm writing about John Adams' presidency and his establishment of the peaceful transfer of power and other critical precedents and norms. And I think that Washington actually makes some mistakes in his final years. And I would like to ask him about those as well.
0: Interestingly, Washington, as president of the United States, has as his vice president for eight years, John Adams. Does he ever consult with John Adams on any of these issues or he just ignores him completely?
1: He sent John Adams a letter early in his presidency asking for some advice on a number of issues including you know what sort of events should the president host how accessible should he be can the president attend private events as a citizen can he spend time with friends things like that and then there are a couple of other moments where he sends him a letter maybe asking about something but mostly kept Adams at arm's length he never invited Adams to a single cabinet meeting he really kept him out of the loop of governing decisions including, when Adams was trying to decide what to do with his cabinet, Washington really withheld some very important information that I think would have been quite useful to Adams as he was deciding what to do with his cabinet secretaries.
0: Subsequent to uh, that transition of power, I thought that Adams kept all of the officers in the Washington cabinet, which he later regretted. Is that right?
1: Yes, he did. And partly, I mean, I think this decision is a little bit sometimes misunderstood, he knew that Washington had had a lot of trouble getting people to fill those positions. It was really hard to find replacements. And he figured if Washington had trouble, he would have trouble. He also understood that the moment for the American people was a very stressful one. They had never experienced a transfer of power before. They had only known Washington as president. And while we know what happened, they didn't necessarily know what happened and they didn't know how it would go. And so if he could provide some continuity in the departments, some stability, he thought that that would be really reassuring for the American people. But he did ultimately grow to regret it and pretty quickly.
0: Well, Dr. Trevinsky, I really enjoyed reading your book, The Cabinet. I congratulate you on uh, writing it. And uh, it's been great speaking with you today. Thank you very much for an interesting conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.